So, Jordan, what inspired you to grow your hair out? Uh, initially, I uh, had short hair, as you may know, and then uh, some people on Twitter were really inspired to uh, to suggest to me that long hair might be the ticket using a app. And I was so inspired by it, I was like, well, this is, I've got to immediately grow my hair out within an incredibly short period of time. You? What, what inspired you, Tyler? Well, I mean, it's just strange that we both decided to also cut it since then. But yeah, the same app found inspiration with. You know, I... <laughs> This isn't even. This isn't like a a time relevant topic, so it's weird to bring up FaceApp, which is probably what they used. That's what I was using anyway. And I just happened to be messing it for unrelated reasons. It was because I'd gone to see Uncharted, and I wanted to post something about how the biggest. Well, I did. I posted a lot about how the biggest problem is that Sully does not have a mustache, which of course we all know that he does. and so I tried to download a picture of uh, Marky Mark and add a mustache to him and say this would fix it. And instead, I ended up giving myself uh, some very long, luscious hair. And I, d- I can't believe... So if anybody hasn't seen either of these, go to Twitter. Um, mine and Jordan Drake. Jordan Drake, Jordan Drake what's, your, what's your Twitter so anybody can find it? I'm that Jordan Drake. And oh, the picture right, is still my Jordan profile, Drake. I guess, for a little bit longer <laughs> now that we've had this conversation. Easy to find. So, uh, yeah, anyway, FaceApp... It's not new, right? I mean, this was like two years ago that it was really making the rounds. But I'm just still shocked and disgusted at how real it looks. Because in my photo, this was shot with an anamorphic lens. It's like weird lensing. This is the, 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 the blur shapes are not non-standard. They're not spherical. Um, I have a backlight, a really strong backlight. And a, the lights in the front is clearly coming from one direction. Like really uh, st- just strong light sources, right? It's not flat. It's not simple. And the way that FaceApp was able to just grow hair onto my head that completely reflected the real world lighting, I, 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 I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't have that, that much to add to it. I just am still shocked at what machine learning is able to do. So it, It's still frustrating how good it is and that that's not like, why is there no hair button in Photoshop yet? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's also a lesson to uh, don't believe anything you see on the internet. Because I think that probably more than a few people that saw each of our posts assumed they were real because... I don't know. Why wouldn't you? Why would, yeah. why would we yeah. lie there about were, something there like were no, that? I'm not going to call the, I'm not going to call those people out, but yeah, quite a few were definitely fooled by because, it. Because it looks, it looks real. Anyway, it looks great on you. Mm-hmm. I was happy about it. Um, are you a Uncharted fan in any way? You know, it's funny. I actually started the because i don't have any modern systems but a buddy gave me a playstation 3 because he's like your blu-ray player takes too long to load it was like a panasonic that came out when uh like blu-ray players when they first came out so he just gave me a ps3 uh and i kept hearing about it so it it was actually this year i was like oh i'm gonna try uncharted and it wasn't very good but then i kept hearing like you gotta do two you played one okay okay yeah I played one. Then I fired up two, and it's like, oh, now this all makes sense. Okay. Yeah, they're great. So I just went through all of that over the last month because the Uncharted pack, the greatest hits pack, I don't know, whatever it was, that was remastered for PS4, had one, two, and three, and it was on sale for 10 bucks. So I was like, yes, of course. And, um, yeah, one was – it's not horrible. Like, you you have to play it as a retro game. And be like, okay, mm. this is the context of when it was made, and this is probably what they were. This is why it would have been good at the time, but it doesn't hold up. The aiming is is really bad. The graphics are, you know, mediocre. The, the graphics aren't as bad as the animation. Actually, like his running animation is more mm. like 
hockey skating. And, um, but the environments were amazing. They looked great. Uh, once you get to three, which is what I just played, and you should be able to play two. I think three is still a PS3 game. It, then you're like, this is, right. this is Uncharted. This is like a modern Uncharted game. So I'd recommend go a little further. Yeah, I mean, I was coming from uh, last time I was on talking about Civilization VI. So you can imagine both the Uncharted games yeah, seem catching like up a to huge do. step forward in, in realism. And man, video <laughs> games, what what will they come up with next? Anyway, I, I'm just here to recommend some very old games. But uh, more importantly, Uncharted 4. Okay, yeah, I was, I was just saying 1, 2, and 3 are good. Uncharted 4 is just still feels modern right now. And there was just like a reissue of it. So you can play uh, like a remastered version for PS5 as well. And um, anyway, it's amazing. The movie's not that great. But yeah, let's talk about something that you do know about, that you did your homework for. Let's talk about the GH6. <laughs> yeah, usually I'd be like, let's do some movie talk, Tyler. But with Uncharted, I'm like, let's move on to the camera. Today. All right, let's talk about cameras today. I mean, that's, that's the big thing we have in common this week. We both released our GH6 reviews, my first Panasonic review ever. Um, anybody watching the video version of this, um, we are both shooting on it. Uh, so you can see some kind of sample of it. First big thoughts. I mean, this is a, this is a significant camera. It's a flagship-ish camera. Like, it's a, one of the most impactful video digital cameras of the last few generations. You know, Panasonic, I guess it would have been GH4 that really changed everything. Uh, correct me if it was earlier that made, like, the, the huge differences to 4K. But I don't know. Give us a history of the GH series. The GH, it seems like every iteration of it has a major step forward. So the GH1 was the first mirrorless camera that could record video. Uh, so right, it had 1080p recording on it, microphone input. Uh, kind of got that ball rolling with 1080 quality. The GH2 is a... A legendary camera because you could hack it. Uh, you might remember a bunch of like feature films were using the GH2 because you could get a crazy high data rate on it. This would be around like the 5D Mark II teetering on Mark III days. So there mm. was still a lot of like, you know, terrible moiré aliasing issues and stuff. And the GH2, even with its smaller sensor, still uh, didn't really have a lot of those problems. Uh, so as long as you were fine with the smaller sensor, it was a great camera. I used it a lot. Uh, then the GH3, they just added the features that got hacked onto the camera <laughs> into the retail version of it, uh, which was still a big jump up. But yeah, the GH4 was the 4K camera that it seems like every was everybody's first 4K camera. Um, you know, I guess GoPro 2 was doing 4K at the same time, but for a big chip, uh, it was a huge deal. And we shot a ton of, you know, back when we did Camera Store TV, that was one of the first mirrorless cameras. I would leave the big cinema cameras I was using aside and go shoot entire episodes with that, not using it as a B cam. Um, but we still stuck with cinema cameras until the GH5 came out. And that was the time where I was like, you know what? I can actually ditch these Sony, you know, cinema broadcast cameras. And we're getting very similar quality on this little mirrorless, you know, XLR inputs, all kinds of intuitive features, some of which you talked about in your GH6 review. Uh, that I definitely want to get into a little bit. Um, but then that camera came out five years ago, and it's just been like this workhorse camera that everybody still seems to be using. Uh, you know, talking to people, it's still like schools will just pick up a bunch of them or something like that, because it always works. doesn't have a lot of weird quirks to it, uh, but it was definitely getting long in the tooth. And with the GH6, it seems like they've really taken the mentality of you know, we don't need a big fancy headline feature. Let's just make sure every option that you could possibly want is available. Like if you want to do slow-mo, go for it. If you want to shoot four by three, which is what I'm doing right now, because mm -hmm. boxier is better, 
you can do that. Uh, and everything is very well laid out on it. Uh, just quick access through like having an audio menu is something that just seems like cameras should have had this for a very long time. They've been on video cameras forever. We'll go through a bunch of these, but it seems like they kind of, I, I guess the counter example would be the Canon R5 where they were like, we have a headline, we have 8K raw recording and it's not ready for prime time yet where the GH6 seems kind of like there is no headline feature in this camera but everything in it works really, really well, uh, with the exception of we got to, you know, touch on autofocus. And I'm sure we'll do that here in a little bit. Well, and yeah, I'm going to start I'm going to start with the bad stuff because I, I find it pretty easy to go on and on about the things I like about this camera, because there's a lot mm -hmm. there's a lot to like. And it's sort of more they're more interesting things. And, and maybe overall, that's what I like about this camera is that it is interesting it is different from other cameras that are available and offer stuff that nobody else is doing or not many people like you you can't find this combination anywhere else but no. uh the reason i had never shot with one before i mean the the biggest is the size of the sensor i mean it mm -hmm. it's it's relatively big to to like the olden days but it is now um you know a, a smaller sensor and i have a hard time i have a really hard time giving up um dynamic range as everybody yep. that listens to the show would know and I uh, uh, especially also have, yeah, I also have a problem giving up Boca. Like, I, I want to be able to access it. Um, and you definitely have to work harder to get much blur in your background on this. So the, 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 those, the, those are just inherent issues with the, the sensor, the technology choices. And they're the reasons that I'd always kind of avoided this format and just thought, like, you know what? This is great for the people that it's working for. They're making good content with it. Jordan's obviously making it work for him, but it's not what I'm going to select for myself. Um, once it's in my hands, you know, once they send me a review unit and it's like, okay, time to try it. I, I mean, I started to find a lot more reasons to love it. And the approach that I came to it with, as soon as I found out the camera was coming, so I'm like, wait. This would be the perfect social media creation camera for professionals. Obviously, for most people that are just going to post Instagram stories or reels or TikToks, they're going to use a phone because that's it's actually it's easier. But there are so many professional contexts right now where you need to create high-end work that needs to have precise control and needs to feel at home once it's published to a social media platform. And this is this is 100% just the perfect camera for that. It it is a better choice than the ones that I currently use, and um, so you know I don't I don't really plan to buy this for myself. I, I I do think about it, but I know that when I go back to shooting on just the C70 and the R5, I, I'm going to miss some of these features. I'm going to be like, man, this sucks. And yeah, I don't know when to dive into the details. Maybe we could, maybe we just start with the big flagship thing right out of the gate. Is the the crop factor the the ratio of the sensor and how significant that is for me because i feel like this is something i said in the review that resonated with a lot of people having a almost square sensor can completely change the way you shoot if you are working in kind of a modern horizontal and vertical ecosystem um, a, a great example of this was actually the snapchat classes the had the uh, it was a square sensor but it recorded as a circle and as you turned your phone to watch the content it would just fluidly rotate from side to side so you would never see the edges of the video and that's brilliant to me like this is kind of the mm -hmm. world that we live in and shooting on a four by three sensor like this gets you much closer to that 
fluidity within your editing where you have more space above your head, you have more headroom and space below the crop so that you can easily take a vertical extract from what was going to be horizontal video. You're not sacrificing any quality. You can still frame it in a way that makes sense. I, I mean, it's a, it, it is a huge advantage. Yeah, absolutely. And they've had multi-aspect sensors before, but part of what I really like about this is it's high resolution when you're doing that more square format. So whichever way you go, you've got a little more than like your standard 4K, 8 megapixels resolution there uh, to work with. So it makes it even more effective when you're doing vertical video with a 4x3 that's very high resolution, as opposed to, you know, if you have to pull vertical out of a 16x9 crop, it's awkward. Uh, just comp in terms of composition, but it's also very low resolution when you do that. Um, makes a lot of sense. So other aspects about it that um, are maybe underrated is that this is already how a lot of like the pro professional world it has been working for a while. So I'd already been hearing about this, listening to the Wandering DP, DP podcast, which is like often, you know, my entry point into like the next level of commercial above what I'm doing. And, you know, he's shooting Alexa and those sensors are already in a more square format because shooting a, uh, are they the same ratio actually? Is it four by three? I don't know if it's the same or similar. I think it's a little wider than that. I'd have yeah. to double check. Yeah, that. That'd make sense to me. I'd be surprised if it was a square. But anyway, the, the point is, is that you are op often shooting open gate like this so that you have some additional, if you're shooting spherical, I guess, you have some additional space on top and bottom that you account for later. Like, you know, you're going to crop into that. You can recompose your frame in all sorts of ways later. Um, and this, and you know that if you need to also do social media assets from the same source material, you're not giving anything up. So let me, let me try to spell this out, especially to an audio listener that might be having a hard time visually visualizing how significant this is. Like, uh, typically, if you're going to set up a, a talking headshot, you've only got, you know, I don't know, I sort of measure it as like, if I put my fist on top of my head, that's like the top of the frame. So that's what, like, I don't know, three inches away from the top of my head is where I leave the, the opening of the video frame. And that's in 16 by nine. So if I still set up the frame like that for a regular wide video, I've now got like real headroom. I've got like another four or five inches on top of that when I'm shooting to this square aspect ratio. So once I crop this to a vertical composition, I have an appropriate amount of headroom. Cause when you shoot vertically, you don't put your head at the top of the frame like that. It looks weird in vertical. You would give yourself more copy space, more negative space above your head in a vertical format. You don't compose things the same way for horizontal and video. So shooting at square gives you that opportunity to, to lock into both formats of composition without making a significant compromise. Did I sell it? That's brilliant, yeah. And the other great thing about that boxy ratio, which you got to dabble with for the first time, is anamorphic support, which I've had a lot of fun uh, over the years, but not as frequently as I'd like to because they're pricey lenses uh, to rent. But uh, it is a look that I'm absolutely in love with, and I want to know your take on it because I saw some snippets in your video, but how did you find it different? I mean, it's kind of the opposite. I always find it's like I want my frame when I'm shooting a two by three, I'm like I want my frame to be either boxier than it is or way 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 wider than it is you know it's it's like that meme with the guy getting more excited 
you know, I'm like two by three, not really sixteen nine. Yeah, one, you know, one eighty five. Now we're getting there, and by the time I get to two three five to one, it's just yes. So I I always have really mixed feelings about anamorphic because visually, I I just I love how it how the image falls apart. I love the way anamorphic bokeh falls off, and it's it's not just that. Um, you know, the, the distinct thing that if anybody doesn't know how to spot an anamorphic lens is that any strong lights in the background are going to turn into ovals instead of circles. Um, but that's not, I don't know, that's just like take one or the other. What I love is that where things like really start to blur, like if you've got, let's say, foliage or, um, you know, fine details, like just like buildings way off in the distance, the way they kind of fall apart feels more scrambled. Like it almost feels less organized to me, to my eye than spherical. Spherical is more obvious what the blurred object is. It's a little bit more destroyed on anamorphic. And especially as you go toward the sides, like the edges of the frame are just start to fall apart. First of all, there's often distortion. Most anamorphic lenses don't control it nearly as well as spherical. So you're going to have big curves on any straight lines on the side. And they also are going to vignette more and also be softer in the corners. So like everything falls apart more and it's beautiful. Like I, I, I love all of that about it. Um, so I, I did yeah, it's like, enjoy it's like all that. It's like black and white, saying. kind of. Yeah. Yeah, there's that unreality thing to it, which is part of why I love that. It is not how our eyes see things that are out of focus. And the other really interesting thing is uh, when you move the camera or have your subject moving through the edges of the frame, uh, it's a very flat field because you're using longer lenses on an anamorphic. So the sense of motion is actually really different. So as much right. as I can when I'm, I'm using anamorphic, I'm trying to do, you know, slight camera moves and stuff. But with the GH6, I'm loving just hand-holding the camera. Mm -hmm. And you're getting that cool sense of anamorphic perspective, weird stuff happening in the background. And, you know, it's not just a, you know, I like doing it because it's old Hollywood. Every time we've shot something anamorphic on the channel, everybody's like, whoa, what's going on with that? That looks really cool. Yeah, that's the thing is it's just there's a not so subtle, but hard for normal people to understand difference about it that like really changes what your image is. And of course, the other big thing being flares. A lot of people just shoot it because you get crazy flares. Um, and that's actually something I dislike about it. It's a reason that I haven't gotten anywhere near the cheaper, um, like, I forget the brand name. It's Siriu? Like what are... Siray, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know all the letters in it, but... Um, I look at the samples. So good example, Cam McKay has been shooting some beautiful stuff on it. And the, the final product is awesome. It looks great. But the flares are so damn blue. It's too blue. Like the, the flares are, they're, they're breaking the sensor. Like they're so oversaturated that it is, it feels like your sensor is being damaged by the sun. Um, and that, that's, it's, it, it makes me be able to spot those cheap lenses like, very easily it's much stronger and i found that being to be less of an issue on the vasin is that the is yeah that the, yeah that's what it's called <laughs> the, the vasin 28 yeah, yeah that that i was using that um it wasn't as bad it was a bit more subtle and uh but still had some of the nice flair i still feel like it's for trade shows they're like look at our new anamorphic lens hold your cell right. phone up isn't that cool yeah but when you actually use it on a set that's lit yeah it looks so artificial and yeah just nauseating yeah so and, and i mean sort of the same with the moment anamorphics which it's it's cool that they did that I'm, I'm glad somebody tried it but shooting anamorphic on your cell phone i mean doesn't have any of those blur attributes i was just talking about which is what i like the most that's more important than the flares and the flares are they're not as beautiful as on a bigger sensor so um i don't know i'm like i, I kind of feel like 
anamorphic hasn't fully arrived at the more affordable end yet. Like you, you're definitely doing it with the basins that we were using, but um, it's just it's just starting to get there. What what I actually like less is I I'm not a huge fan of the extremely wide aspect ratios because most viewing experiences for stuff that I'm I'm creating for are not going to experience that whole width almost ever. I mean. Even, you know, horizontally on a phone, that's two by one. So you're still, I mean, I mean, like optimal is two by one. So you're still not really able to like fill up the screen if you've got something that is like a 1.88, which, which these were, you're, um, you're just putting a lot of black on the screen. And to me, I see that as, as like emptiness. Um, I, I don't see it as a positive attribute. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know which lenses I do love looking at other people's work, looking at commercials on TV. I'm never sure what they're shooting on when I see it, but it's something that's not as wide as what I was using, um, that you can still feel that little bit of anamorphic destruction to the bokeh, but without making your black bars too big on the screen. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And you can't extract a vertical out of anamorphic. That's for sure. (laughs) That's a, that's a real shame. Yeah. <laughs> but but let, let's bring it back around to the GH6. So um, you, what, what other uh, sensors even let you do this? I mean, um, are, are there other affordable sensors out there, or do you have to move up to an Alexa? Well, the GH5 has been my anamorphic camera okay, of right. choice for a long time. Any right? non-panasonic. Same aspect ratio yeah. and everything like that. Well, a lot of them, like uh, if you look at the new, um, the uh, I want to say 5DSR, the R5C, that just came out that mm-hmm. has an anamorphic well, but all it does is it just takes a vertical chunk of the 16 by 9 video so you're cropping your sensor down so incredibly small okay, at yeah, that so point this... in order to do it so in order to do it properly you're looking at yeah uh, you're looking at some of the reds uh, have had boxier sensors and alexas well so before i f- finish my rant i actually just want to acknowledge one thing i forgot um I, just, I was in such a rush to set this up, I forgot to grab a chair. This is my first podcast standing the whole time, and it's completely by accident. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling antsy uh, doing that. But, um, okay, end of my rant. The big problem with, uh, yeah, every, every other sensor out there. So take uh, the Canon R5C, which let's talk about it a little bit too after. Um, but it's got a, what, two, two by three sensor, right? So it is... Yep. It is wider than the Panasonic GH6, but it is still much higher than 16 by 9. Like, quite a bit. There's a lot of extra sensor there. And they just don't let you access it. Same with the R5, with the R6, with the A7S3, with uh, A7R4, with every camera that's come out. Most cameras, most full-frame cameras, none of them let you access all those extra pixels that are on the sensor. You you paid for the sensor and in some cases like on the a7s3 i mean this is made to be a video camera video first really and you're just not using those pixels um i actually wonder if the uh what's what's the one that's made for for video the a set a fx3 is that what ratio is that sensor that's still a two by three it's same chip as the a7s3 yeah exactly that's what my eyes do as well but just (laughs) unlock the but yeah, yeah, the open gate recording. It's such yeah. a common thing in video cameras. And it causes a problem if you're to do anamorphic. So if you just take if you take 16 by 9 and put a anamorphic lens there and de-squeeze it and like stretch it to wide, it becomes like a sliver in the middle of the screen. It's not it doesn't feel like going to the movie theater. It just feels like your TV's broken. Like so much is missing from it. 
um, it's not a good way to shoot anamorphic. It's you, you need to get a lens that, ha- I mean, I, I don't know all the ratio numbers saying them out loud wouldn't be that helpful anyway, but, um, you, you need something that is a lot less stretchy, less wide uh, on yeah. a 16 by nine sensor. Yeah. A 1.3 is the classic one. And you're losing okay. so much of that anamorphic. Look, I've said before, uh, cause everybody is like, why don't you take a look at some of these cheap 1.3s? And no, it's, I, I want something with a bigger squeeze, like at least a 1.6 yeah. uh, to make it worthwhile, I think. Well, yeah. So you, if you know the numbers better than I do, obviously what, what are most anamorphic movie movies shot on? Movie movies are either yeah, generally a two times uh, would be the most common for that. Okay. Uh, but then, yeah, 1.8 is quite common. Uh, and then, yeah, 1.6 would be your like two by three sensor property squeeze ratio. And there's some full frame. Vazen just brought out some full frame 1.6s, right. which makes me think someone's going to be unlocking 2.3 recording or two by three uh, with a full frame camera. It makes sense. It would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? But I, I don't. I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to hold my breath. I feel like nobody's thinking about this. Um, anyway, so the, the, those those are my absolute favorite things about the GH6. Huge advantages. Um, I, let's hit autofocus for a minute. That's another reason I would possibly not choose this camera. We are both for this recording. We're running in autofocus. I don't think it's jumped from either of us. Has, has your autofocus stayed for the last whatever uh, twenty five minutes we've been recording? Yeah. It's been pretty solid. I mean, I'm not previewing it that much because it's rude to look at your LCD screen. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I was mentioning to you before the show started, this has a wonderful feature that we actually put out a video requesting on cameras where there's a custom focus limiter. Uh, so you can just set, you know, focus in between this distance and this distance. And uh, it's been working really well. Uh, I used it vlogging the other day. We've been using it to record a few sit-down talking head interviews where... Generally, that's where the Panasonic cameras are the worst. They're always kind of looking for something that may or may not be there. But this really reins that in. And for this kind of stuff, I think it's very useful. I'm not going to go shoot, you know, a runner coming towards the camera like I might with a Canon or a Sony or Nikon system. Mm -hmm. But for, you know, this kind of stuff where it's just like, look, I don't have a camera operator today. I'm going to trust the Panasonic. Uh, I would be a lot more comfortable using it uh, with the combination of this faster reading sensor, which helps the autofocus and uh, just having that focus limiter to keep it from going way off in the distance. Well, I, I'm curious how much is this coming from your perspective of being a prisoner in Panasonic's bad autofocus in the past? <laughs> and, you know, like I, you're used to something terrible and now it got... 15% better. So you, you know, you're, you're happy to have that little prize or, um, you know, did it make, did, did it make a real difference? Well, remember I am testing better focusing cameras pretty much every week for the show right, as well. Yeah. So I know what's out there, you know, what it can be, uh, and I know how good it is. Yes. Um, so no, I mean, I would still put this nowhere near the top, uh, heap of the autofocus systems. I'd say it's maybe a little consistent than the Fujifilm and honestly, Canon, for more static stuff, I found it can be a little bit antsy as well. Uh, sometimes overshoots a little bit if you move your head slightly, uh, things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, none of them are okay. This, the Nikon Z9 is almost perfect in my experience, but not many are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah, I would put this quite a bit lower. If you need really good autofocus performance, then this is not the camera for you. It's really funny since the GH5 came out where everyone was like, yeah, the autofocus sucks, but it's a video camera. Who cares? Um, to, in that five-year period to the expectation of 
video cameras have good autofocus, you know, things like the C200 mm-hmm. or, you know, the Sony FX6, FX9, all have really good autofocus systems. It's become an expectation now. And I do kind of get the impression that, you know, Panasonic's like, look, everyone was fine with the autofocus before. It's, it's going to be a little bit better, but no yeah. one uses the autofocus anyways. Our good lenses have focus clutches on them. They're very easy to manually focus. And uh, that is not the case as much anymore. Yeah, that was that was the response I got from my meeting with Panasonic that I, I think kind of makes sense. Just the, the generally, uh, you know, at the they they didn't realize where autofocus might be at the point that this sensor would have been released. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it was hard to tell that autofocus was going to get so good, but it did. So, you know, it's, it's competing in a market that maybe it wasn't quite ready for. Um, you know, uh, autofocus matters in certain situations. It matters a lot until it doesn't. Uh, you know, I find that typically, um, when I'm most concerned about it is in my, in my filming is this kind of, situation where it's a talking head and a face is visible. That's when I really rely on autofocus because I don't trust much other autofocused enough to just completely leave it on its own. And the face detection Mm -hmm. is the way that it works best. If there's no face, the GH6 starts to hunt more. It just is less confident about what you want. It'll try to find bodies and stuff. And sometimes it'll go right. Sometimes it won't. But um, for, for the most common use cases for me, you know, recording myself for YouTube, I don't, I don't think it ever lost me in when it was, when I was letting it be easy, you know, well lit looking at the lens, it it found me every time. So, um, I think if you were to be in a really like really run and gun scenario where you're, um, you know, not able to have somebody else operating your focus and you're just kind of having to trust your camera a lot, it's probably going to get it wrong a lot, but I'd also say this is, it's almost too bad because this is such a perfect, like, you know, you're going on a crazy adventure documentary type camera because the lenses are way smaller. The, the body's small, great quality, super easy to use. The, the fact that more is in focus is also a, a, a plus for a lot of different styles of like, say, news gathering. Um, if you're just trying to document the thing in front of you and as opposed to primarily, you know, worrying more about making it look like a movie. Um, look cinematic, um, it will do some of the, the best work out there, especially with the uh, stabilization, which can you explain? Okay. Everybody told me that I did my stabilization tests wrong. I turned on all right. of the, all the stabilization and I was getting some crazy jitters. W- what was I doing wrong? Okay. So there's um, your standard stabilizer mode, which is all optical. Uh, so no worries about any weirdness on it. There's also just like what you've got on the cannons and everything. You've got the extra digital stabilization, uh, which works really well in higher frame rates, not as well at 24 frames. Cause sometimes you'll still get blur in the frame and it can look weird, but then they have something called their boost stabilization. And this is specifically for, if you're locking off a shot, like you're using a telephoto lens, you don't want the frame to move at all. Uh, it tries to lock it down. It does an incredibly good job when you're doing that. The problem is then if you try and pan the camera or walk with it or anything, you'll see it moving in these big chunky steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, exa- well, what it sounds like, and I could see in your footage, that's what was happening. That is it. what happened. And, and they do need to have a different name for it, I think, like yes. tripod <laughs> mode or something like that. Yeah, no, that way more sense than boost totally. mode. Like I'm skiing. I want to boost. Yeah. And, uh, that, that, that was my, th- I mean, so I, I actually did run it in all of the settings and then I just, I had so much footage that when I was going through it, I didn't, I'm like, well, I'm not going to watch all the lower 
settings. I'm just going to watch the maximum and the minimum. And that was obviously wrong. So, uh, but, but this is part of not being familiar with the camera system, um, before I was testing it. So, uh, anyway, now, now I know, <laughs> and, and I would love to, I'm going to go back and take a look at it and get an impression of what was the stuff that I shot that only was using the more straightforward stabilization, uh, systems. Um, cause I've heard it's, I've heard it's great if you use it correctly. So it's, it's really good, and it does. It's one of the few cameras out there that doesn't have the wide-angle warping issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is pretty much on you know all of the big three manufacturers. Sony, Canon, Nikon all suffer from it, um, and it's really well controlled. The only other company that's cracked the code with that is Olympus, uh, now OM Systems. So to have another company that's really good on the video front and has solved that issue is a really big deal as well. Uh, also, really big deal is colors are where they should be now because it uses Vlog which previously used something called vlog l i learned all this while i was recording so you know this but i'm just like reciting what somebody told me it used to be a, a less true log curve that they were using and now it's their full cinema line um logarithmic profile uh yeah. it's better right that's what it's supposed to be better it, it was pretty good i was I, I was never disappointed with it yeah absolutely so the older curve was actually made for the gh4 which was like a seven eight year old camera uh, that's An what they built bit. their vlog um, l profile yeah, yeah. and uh, well it was 10 bit externally recorded that's what mm. they built it for but sensors have come a really long way since then uh you know like we've talked about canon's original c log for a while that was built for a uh, c100 i believe originally you know some of these things they just have to update them as the sensors get more capable and full vlog is my favorite log profile out there i just it's a very smooth that you don't see on a lot of cameras where as you move from like the mids to the highlights, you get these weird color shifts and things like that. It's just a very well-controlled one. I don't love a lot of Panasonic's LUTs put a little too much magenta in them for me, but that's Mm. like the easiest thing in the world to just curve that out quickly. Uh, But yeah, I love working with Vlog and it's really nice to see it in this sensor. And it kind of brings up, like you were talking before about, I couldn't use the smaller sensor uh, of the micro four thirds cameras. And, you know, dynamic range is one of the big limitations there. But with their DR Boost, Mm -hmm. where it's reading out the sensor at two different, essentially native sensitivities at the same time, uh, you know, it's not not a micro four-thirds camera competing with full frame. Well, some with really bad log profiles it is. But uh, yeah, I would say definitely it's as good as an APS-C sensor. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you're getting the dynamic range of a sensor twice as good, and this is their first stab at it, uh, that's really, really impressive. And I think dynamic range is the one thing they had to get under control because it's like, why do you want a bigger sensor? Uh, well, we want better low light. So they made F1.7 zooms and it's like, okay, here you go. That's less of a concern. Now you can get shallow depth of field and low light. But the last one was dynamic range. Like you can't do anything. And they've found a workaround to improve the dynamic range for that. You know, it's not as good as the full frame, but I can't wait to see this feature on a full frame Panasonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get an extra stop, two stops of dynamic range. Uh, I think that's a really exciting option. Yeah, so it's doing, you know, pretty much the same thing that Canon has done with their DGO on the C300 and the C70. And that was based on what Alexa was doing. So everybody's going down the same path, which I think is great because it's obviously a proven solution that works really well. It um, It is, be- the implementation on Canon is just objectively better because uh, there's there aren't all the ISO limitations in the same way um you can only shoot at iso 2000 for dr boost and well at 2000 and above um and it's always on like i like 
with this, with the Canon, you just don't have to know that this exists. And to me, getting the best possible image quality out of your camera shouldn't be a feature that you have to know to turn on, ideally, right? And the difference, which I showed some of the grading differences in my review, it it was like, it was huge. I mean, I, I think other people yeah. showed off examples of just like, look, if you just apply, if you shoot a high dynamic range scene and apply a LUT, you see, you see a one-stop difference. Like, okay, it might just be one stop. But if you try to recover the grade, it feels like multiple stops being saved there. I mean, you know, I was exposing, and maybe this is incorrect, but I was exposing the, the DR Boost the same as when it was off, both in Vlog. Um, so, you know, they have the same curve to them. They look, they look the same when they're exposed correctly, but as you overexpose them, the boost, you can recover so much. So to me, this is yeah. the mode to shoot this camera in. Like, I, I just, I don't really care about non-log profiles anymore, um, it, it, unless you're doing a live stream or, you know, kind of shooting direct to tape. Like, there, there's some situation where you literally can't edit it. Makes sense. But if you have any ability to do anything in post, I would always choose log and just throw a good transform on it because um, you can do so much better. And note to self and to you, but when we wrap up GH6, I want to talk about Resolve some more because I've been watching a lot of videos. So transforms, I want, I want to bring that back up. So put put a stick I in I saw that. That, that was a long Twitter thread. Oh, oh, man, I'm that, curious that how deep we're going to go down yeah. that thing. Oh, I don't know how far we can yeah. go. But uh, what, what else do we still have about the GH6 before we move on? Um, are you going to be switching to it for your primary YouTube camera? I think I think so. Yeah, I mean, I love the S1H, the full frame camera. I got a video that'll be going out. Uh, if you're watching this live, it'll be tomorrow morning. Otherwise, probably when this podcast is out, uh, comparing it to it'll the S1H. Yeah. And yeah, the the full frame camera, you know, it's got more dynamic range and better low light performance. But in every other regard, the GH6 is a better camera. Uh, and yeah, because they have those super fast zooms, it's like, you know what? Yeah, I think for most stuff, I could totally stick with the GH6 for that. Um, and the one thing we haven't touched on is because this sensor reads out, like the slow-mo capabilities of this camera are bananas, like getting 4K 120, 1080, 300. Yeah, right. And the biggest that. thing, the biggest thing is like, if you use your, um, your R5 and go 4K 120, like it's nice, but the quality is nowhere near as good as what it is when you're doing HQ mm -hmm. uh, recording on that camera, where here we shot charts with it. It's the same quality at 24, 30, 60, 120 frames per second. Uh, there's no drop there. That's awesome. That's the way it should be. It, these are the kind of features yeah. that you just would think are already there. And as you learn more about the camera you're using, you're like, oh, wait, uh, it gets so much softer when I go to specific resolutions or, you know, when 1080p looks bad, you're like, Really? That's the, the cameras haven't figured that out yet. When slow motion looks bad and all that stuff, so seeing a lot of that stuff improving the GH6 is great. I'm suddenly really interested in the full frame um, Panasonic line. Uh, you know, I think maybe I would be a little disappointed trying an S1H right now because it's getting a bit older, and so I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait for an S2, whatever it is, and um, definitely give it a try. And I, I mean. I, I don't know. Like, it looks awesome. I, re I, I really want to work with whatever they come up with next, and maybe it'll have better autofocus. But well, um, you can borrow my S1H for a weekend. Oh, sure. You Is it yours? Like, yeah. you actually... Oh, great. Yeah, I will. I would love to. That'd be awesome. Because, um, yeah, I just... I want to try that big, that big chunky sensor a little bit. It's, that's exciting to me. Um, that's nice. Let's, uh, let's go back to what I was just about to talk about. This is a bit of a... 
Okay. Any any uh, beginners, plug your ears because um, this is a this is a rabbit hole that I, I feel like has taken me a while to get to, and um, I am not all the way finished figuring out what I want to do with it. But uh, you know, is everybody watching probably knows I edit in Final Cut. I've done a lot of Final Cut tutorials. I love it as an editor. It is the fastest way for me to cut a video. But the more time I spend in Resolve, the color tools are not just a little bit better. They're so much better. Like there's just, there's so much you can do. And what really got me interested was taking a look at their color managed workflow. Um, So if you haven't already played with transforming a log image in Resolve, basically you're not just able to apply LUTs. So in Final Cut, it comes with a few default LUTs, and then you're probably going to go and buy some from your favorite YouTuber. Um, and you know, then you can transform your footage, make it look great, but it's, it's variable, right? Like there's no control between the two different ones. Um, so your cameras are all going to look really different coming out of it. There's no standard to it inside of resolves color management. You could use previously just something called a color trans CST color space transform that would you'd say like, okay, I'm shooting this in vlog with the Panasonic vlog color space. I don't know what they call it. Um, and I want V-gamut. to gamut V gamut. And I want to turn this into uh, Alexa log C, or I want to turn this into, uh, you know, the, what, uh, black magic has created, which is their Da Vinci wide gamut color space. That is an intermediate intermediate color space. So when you look at like, you know, those like colorful rainbow, color space charts that are like, this is how big sRGB is. And this is how big P3 is. And this is how big Adobe RGB is. Um, (laughs) The DaVinci wide gamut is like bigger than the chart. It's just, it's everything. It's bigger than aces. It's like the, it's just every color that doesn't exist and more. It's all the colors. And so what happens is if you start working in that space, now every change that you make is like, is beyond non-destructive. So like you can be taking a log image, um, transform it into that intermediate color space where now as you move things around, you are never risking like clipping a color channel or throwing away highlight data because your order of operations is incorrect and you are, um, you know, you're like, you've clipped your highlights before your final LUT comes in. So you try to make adjustments later, but they're, details already gone in the highlights or the shadows or there's all these ways. There's so many ways that people can and do destroy the extra information that they've gathered from that log footage. They're just throwing it away with bad grading practices. When you do this color managed workflow, it's just like, I got you. I understand what you're trying to do here. I won't let you ruin your footage. And by default, as long as you tell it what kind of footage you use, you say, you know, this came out of a Panasonic and B-Log. It'll be like, oh, I know what that's supposed to look like. Here you go. And it just looks normal right away. Um, anyway, have, have yeah. you tried this at all? Yeah, so I but I'm bad. So I use DaVinci as a grading tool exclusively, uh, especially for cameras that shoot raw. Uh, I'll bring them all through there and use it. And it's yeah, it's an absolute delight. And the way Final Cut works with this, uh, with the built-in um, log, uh, where you can just apply it uh, to the clip directly through the info pane, will just do the opposite of what you talked about. It'll just throw away <laughs> highlight information or like, yeah. you know, those magentas I talked about with the vlog, like, guess what? Everybody's, everybody's pink now. This is worth a whole uh, and it's, rant. It's, it's like, it's, it's bad. It, it, this is the way Final Cut thinks you're to, supposed to do it. And it is wrong. Yeah. yeah. I mean, finding the custom LUT in the, uh, 
yeah, it, it's buried within the uh, effects tools. Just uh, it, it needs an update desperately. And it yeah. took me a while before I found that. When I first started working with Log, I'm like, why does this look so much worse than... It? This is even comparing it to Premiere at the time I was working mm -hmm. on. It's like, I can't figure this out. Uh, and yeah, once you understand what's going on with Final Cut, you can work around it, but it's annoying. And DaVinci is always like a breath of fresh air when I'm in there. But I also hate round tripping, and I'm bad at editing in DaVinci. So I probably need to just figure that out. That's me. Uh, but the I other thing, and you touched on it on the on the Twitter thread, is within Final Cut, if you don't do it the way Apple wants you to, it really bogs your performance down. Like I have some good plugins that I like working with, Color Finale, or uh, even using the custom LUT. Once you start stacking effects on those video clips, it really slows it down compared to using the little info tab that doesn't work the way it should, but the performance is fantastic when you use it. Uh, so you're always losing. It's I, it, This is a little lazy, but if I nail my exposure and my colors where it should be, I will still use the info pane. Click it. Does that look okay? Yes, that's okay. And then, yeah. Brutal. But, that, you know, that's <laughs> like your next day turnaround. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah. it's awful. Uh, just to get a little bit of a performance boost. I'm not doing that as much now with the M1 because it can actually process video clips, which is nice. Uh, but yeah, it's it's terrible. Final Cut needs to sort it out. Uh, I'm going to NAB, so maybe I'll berate somebody there. Yeah. I think that'll be a good idea. Yeah, maybe idea. I'll go just to do that. I mean, it's 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 really crazy because what does what do the Final Cut engineers think that we would should be doing even like oh just just don't grade in here. Don't use Final Cut for grading unless you're using baked in rec 709 footage like it's a very 10 years ago attitude where it's like oh people are shooting with their handy cams they don't have log footage they don't need to perform a transform on everything that comes in it's just not acknowledging where things are right now um and i feel like we're all kind of put a, kind of putting up with it because most of us like you know independent freelance filmmakers that don't uh, aren't able to send our footage off to a grading suite afterwards, like don't have a professional colorist working on our footage. We don't know how good our footage can look. So you just like, you just drop a letter and you're like, okay, I guess <laughs> that's all I can do. So, um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm at a similar place of like, I can't stand round tripping. I'm, I'm editing a project for someone else. This is, this is my first time doing a, like an only editing big project. So that's kind of interesting, like working with other people's footage. So I have done the edit in Final Cut. I'm going to move the grade into Resolve. So I will do that workflow. Um, but for YouTube, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It would just take too long to do that. So sigh. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I've never been so, I, I've never been so tempted to move to Resolve. Um, I don't want to edit into edit in it, but uh, the color, the color stuff is so much better. Anyway, I don't know. What to yeah. Do. And the audio stuff is really coming yes. along too. Like also every that. time I, uh, we did a couple videos with black magic cameras, which I could only edit in resolve. And, you know, it took me a little while, but it's certainly coming along, but final cut is, it's just so much faster still. It would be tough for me to walk away from that, even though DaVinci is making big strides. Well, and let's also clarify the ways that it's faster too. Cause I, I did do a video specifically about this. Um, on new Macs, anyway, like I, I, I know older machines aren't all the same, but where things are right now, if you're completely up to date with Resolve and you have a new Mac, the performance of the application has totally caught up to Final Cut. So like exports in all my tests were hmm. almost the same. It is, it is really, really fast. Um, there is really no slowdown issues. 
the ways in which it's slower are in your, your mental model of how you work, how you edit. Um, and that's what Final Cut often needs more credit for. It's not just that it runs faster on the processor. It, you run faster on Final Cut because it's always trying to like push you forward to get the, to help you get the edit done. Um, without breaking it basically it's like filling in gaps if you just like start grabbing big sections of the edit and moving them around it'll usually still play back normally it's hard to break the edit whereas in resolve or premiere every change you make you're always kind of repairing things behind yeah. you you know yeah it's like mm-hmm. jenga yeah you just pull you're pulling out a piece and you're like please don't fall apart please don't fall apart and then you put it on the top and you're like okay it's still good oh command said command said yeah, no exactly. it fell apart and, okay. yeah or yeah. you don't catch it till later so uh, that's what the other big Final thing Cut. no one talks about, but it's huge for me is uh, Final Cut's the best with photo files. Uh, oh. I can drop 100 megapixel right. images in there and it doesn't bog things down where Premiere and uh, DaVinci just they, it slows the whole project down. I have so had, if you're the I've kind had, of person who is doing that. I've had it slow my Final Cut down. I, like it might be better because I haven't really tried it in the others, um, but you can't. You, I don't know. I've, I've had I, more so, though. It wasn't like one. I think we talked about this over DMs or something. Uh, it can handle a b- one big photo totally fine. My issues were when I had projects that had like photo after photo after photo, and I'd just been loading up the whole timeline with a whole bunch of samples in full resolution. And then I'm like, wait, why is this so slow? And it, it, yeah, so the, the, I think maybe it's the volume of them if you put too many photos in, but um, there are. Yeah, there we are do lines. a lot for autofocus tests where it's just right. stacks yeah, of images so. all lined up. Uh, and it's them. again, it's much better with the M1, but I tried doing that with uh, Resolve, and it just, nope, nope, we're not going to do that today. Yep. We're spinning beach balling. All right, so software, um, what else did we definitely want to cover today? I, I feel like the R5C is not behind us yet, and I haven't talked to you about it. Did you, uh, what did you think? I didn't get one. Tyler. Oh, you still haven't put your hands my on one? My wife got one. Yeah, so you got one. Yeah, no, I've, I've put my hands on it. Oh, I haven't yeah. shot a frame with it yet. You've, no, you've watched uh, reviews. You've, you, you've seen enough yeah. to have opinions. Yeah, I think it's how hybrid cameras should work. The dual operating model, I think, makes so much sense. Uh, although I wish it took the best from each of those two things. Like, I'd still like the autofocus system from the stills, video autofocus, when you're in video mode on that camera. Uh like I, I like the layout of that a little better, but otherwise, yeah, having the menus based on the video thing. And I'm sure you've had it before where, uh, I always set up my camera. So it's like these settings don't carry them over for video. These settings don't, you know, don't mm-hmm. carry them over for photo. Uh, but you'll grab a new camera and you'll forget about that one time. And you'll suddenly find out that mm-hmm. when you thought you were going to be shooting in log or a nice flat profile, you were recording standard profile and that footage is now useless. Uh, or your shutter speed was a two thousandth of a second, and it this just prevents you from making those mistakes. Uh, I think it's really, really smart. It, it was funny actually going back to GH six for a second. They have some of that functionality that it it knows whether you're in video or photo mode will preserve the settings in the way you would expect it to, but you have to turn it all on manually. And the name of the menu item is so obscure that I forgot what it is. I had to ask Panasonic support. I'm like, is this possible? This seems wrong. So it's super weird to me that the default isn't that to separate the video yeah. and photo settings. Because like, yeah, you turn on log and then you go to take a photo and you're like, uh, <laughs> this isn't what I meant to do. This photo's bad. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of weird to me. But, yeah. And Canon, yeah. this is the biggest step forward in that direction that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Um. I also was really interested by the uh, 
Well, wait, I just forgot their name. What's that channel that I was just telling everybody to subscribe to the day other day? Pro AV? No. Uh, the English guys. Yeah, Pro AV. Yeah, yeah. Out, out Sorry, of the UK. Yeah, yeah. The name. yeah. They know what they're doing. I was just going to say Pro AV is awesome. First of all, I, I didn't realize they have fifty thousand subscribers and they do really in-depth tests. So, like, I, obviously, you're awesome too. There's lots of awesome people out there. I'm just like, oh, they should be at the same number of subscribers as all the other friends I talk to. So, um, anyway, if you if you don't already follow them, you should. But they, they're awesome and. Uh, the thing I like, they are more video centric for mm-hmm. sure. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, we all get, we get our subscribers talking about photo stuff and then nerd out about video uh, yeah. for a small audience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, they're a hundred percent video. I think a hundred. Um, and they really go in depth with it and their host understands it really well. And they did some great tests, but they'll do better tests than I do for sure. Um, so, you know, uh, often I'm checking their test results instead of going in, as in depth because it takes a long time to do a B tests. So anyway, what, uh, what I was seeing is that next to the R five, it is much more different than I expected. I, I had thought that I'd been thinking of them as like, Oh, the, you know, same sensor. Like this is basically going to be 90% the same. The differences are going to be pretty subtle, but um, there was quite a bit of difference. Uh, shooting raw, there was a, a lot more color preservation in the shadows. Um, certain mm. situations, it was still sharper. Um, it, in some way, situations, you're able to sort of extract a little more dynamic range. Like, it was, I was surprised to see that there are actual real image quality differences that are visible, like w- without zooming into 100%. Um, so that, that's just a bit of an update on, I think, everything I'd been saying up till now. I'm like, well, it's the same as the R5, um, but I hadn't gone in and, and really tested it myself. Uh, so anyway, it's not. Yeah. I was really confused why they were using a different RAW format for the R5C and the file sizes were so similar yeah. to what we were getting. Like, why are they complicating things? But apparently they've found a way to get more out of that camera using that different raw recording profile. So that's the kind of thing I would love to really dig into if I get an R5C to review. <laughs> okay, well, that's the, that's the campaign that will start after this is get Jordan an R5C. Uh, yeah, I, well, if I, if I had one, I'd lend it to you. Oh, yeah, the other thing that I, I should follow up on, I've talked about maybe, I don't know if it was on the show or not, but was the... Um, performance of, oh, right, the ability to access C-Log2 from raw files. And I had definitely put a stake in the ground saying, like, yeah, you can't shoot C-Log2 on an R5 or an R5C. It's just not there. You're, it's uh, C-Log3 only. Anyway, I finally did the test, and in Resolve, if you import a raw R5 or a raw file from either one, it's going to read it as C log two. Like that's what, that's how DaVinci interprets it and actually does present it as such. I thought it was like a bug where, where it was saying C log two is available, but it was actually presenting C log three. It is actually C log two. Um, the, again, through pro AV, they did some tests. Oh no, actually in Cine D as well. Did some, uh, dynamic range tests with that setting showing that basically, there seems to be good reason, so maybe I owe Ken an apology. There's good reason that they don't have C-Log2 on these because the noise in the shadows on these sensors isn't appropriate for C-Log2. And that's where the dynamic range shows up between C-Log3 and 2. It's not in the highlights, which is usually where you're looking for it. Um, it's in the shadows. And the, it, the noise floor is, is it's higher on the R series. So there's a good reason not to shoot C-Log. But when I was doing that recovery thing, like that same 
uh, recovery that I did for the GH6, just bringing down an overexposed image, I could bring down way more um, from those C-Log2 RAWs than if I interpret it as C-Log3, which, I don't know, that's like super specific, but uh, doing it through Resolve instead, again, this is like Resolve will let you save so much more than if you try to do this in Final Cut Pro because Final Cut doesn't understand the RAW file. It'll just kind of treat it like a high bit rate log file and uh, throw away a lot of data. So Resolve wins again in that case. Yeah, when we did our um, look at the R5 when it got C-Log3 and you and I were both like, why is it not getting C-Log2? That's the exact same thing uh, my coworker at DP Review, Richard Butler, pointed out to me. Like, no, it's not going to work with this sensor, you dumb dummy. So uh, it's nice to get affirmation from some other people, too, that that is why they've done it. Uh, but the thing that tipped me off to the C-Log2 is actually if you run it through Canon's own terrible raw processing software, mm-hmm. uh, it's like Canon Raw Workspace or something like that. Same thing. It comes in as a C-Log2 uh, conversion there. So that is the way to work with it as long as you're okay initially recording those crazy huge file sizes yeah which i'm not that's another big problem with it i like i just can't shoot raw with these they're they're so big even the light raw is uh my card's 256 and i think it said i get 20 minutes if i'm remembering that right which is totally unreasonable sounds right i don't care who you are who can afford a big stack of 512 cf express cards like those are hundreds of many hundreds of dollars each and you're only going to get like an hour or two of recording i mean like it is such a niche specialty thing and that's why i thought it it was i mean you you played into this a, a little bit too but i think people were a little too concerned about the lack of functionality in high frame rate raw modes um, where the power disappears from lenses and it's like that, that does seem catastrophic. Like you can't, you can't use your lens in this setting. That seems bad, right? Um, it is bad, but the amount of people that are going to be shooting that, I mean, the files are going to like double the numbers I just said. Nobody has those memory cards. Nobody's shooting raw yeah. 60 on this. Like it's cause it's, it's, it's going to be friggin' enormous. So. Well, the, what my counter argument to that is, if you're in a situation where you're going to use those record modes, it is going to be a high-end professional situation. Exactly. And if yeah. you're in one of those and you don't know that your lens mount is about to lose power when you <laughs> switch to that record mode, yeah. you are fired and your reputation is in tatters by the end of it. So, yeah, I... I I think it's our job to be like, you should be very aware that this could be an issue. It's probably never going to be an issue, but in the back of your mind, uh, know that there is that restriction with those record modes. Yeah. That's the thing. As long as you know, they're like, you're saying, if you're working with that, you already have a budget. So, you know, spend it on a focus puller. Um, yeah. Get so, a good cinema manual lens. You know, other than that, like, I, I think I maybe even feel better about the R5C than I did um, when I was testing it after watching some other people's tests, learning more about that C-Log performance. And um, I, I I really like that camera. It's awesome. It's a great camera. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's that's my update. It's It's even better than I thought. 
Well, I think uh, it's a really great example of how to do this properly because Sony brought out their FX3 uh, this year where they took the A7S3 and, you know, they drilled a few quarter 20 screws in it and put a fan in it, took the EVF off and they were like, it's a cinema camera. Mm -hmm. And then you fire it up and you're like, there's no assist tools. It's still mostly a photo camera. Like it's just the same camera in a different box. Canon did it the right way. And I hope that kind of inspires everyone who tackles doing these hybrid photo video cameras to do it in that same kind of way. Yeah, totally. Do do you have trouble? I feel like sometimes it's getting harder for me to complain about cameras that are coming out. Like the point of review is to say the good and the bad, but goddamn cameras are good. You know, like, like even just trying this GH six, um, I don't know. Like I, I, there were, there, there are clear problems. You can see like autofocus doesn't work great. But when you see the images that come out of it and you start like working with it and you're like, wow, there are so many cameras at this level right now. Um, I mean, you were saying the new Olympus is also hitting it out of the park, but I feel like I'm on like three years of saying cameras are amazing. So I, you know, obviously they just keep getting better. But I also, I just love the fact that like the average quality that you see from independent video producers has gone up so much. Like just look at YouTube channels, like any of our channels, it looks so much better than it did back in the day. It's crazy. The difference. I can't watch anything older than three years ago. It's, it's three weeks. horrendous. And I don't recommend anybody listening to this does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's little things. I mean, I was watching one that I was like, wait a minute. I know I shot this in 4k, but it is so soft. And I don't know what it was. I don't know what I was doing wrong, but I'm like looking, I'm like, I would never tolerate this anymore. Like this is crazy. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of those, a lot of like our standards move forward. And that's what I'm saying. I think the next battleground for that is going to be standardization in color. Like our expectations of color should be at the same place that they are for photography. If you're a professional photographer, you're not expected to learn every in and out of color science just to get a normal look out of your images like you you can make them look kind of like film just by getting some basic presets using the built-in presets in lightroom or capture one and it's going to look awesome um we need to get there with video too there's no good reason that it should be as complicated as, as it is right now um and by the way if anybody is wanting to follow the same path i was with that cullen kelly is the youtube channel that was um helping me the most he is a like a legit colorist clearly understands this deeper than a lot of other people that make YouTube videos about it. And, uh, it's been very helpful and I'm going to keep watching a lot more of those, but Jordan, check it out. What, what else you've been into lately? I feel like I picked all the topics today. I didn't ask you what you want to talk about. I, I, I've just been getting through the first two major micro four thirds camera releases in the last three years. And, uh, that's just wrapping up right now. So I don't know what I'm into. Uh, we're going to do a, uh, a movie shoot with the GH6, uh, another one Nichols I mean, coming up. Uh, you'll, very shortly. you'll have already shot it by the time this is out, I'm sure. So, okay, so how did it's it go? Good. <laughs> uh, it's the coloring was a real problem. Well, okay, wait. Uh, no, I have not. Go, going back to the the fact that you were just doing these micro four thirds reviews, um, I feel like Gerald got into a lot of hot water. If anybody didn't see Gerald and Dunn's GH6 video, it was super normal, but his comment section seemed to really dig into him for. Um, saying that basically that the system is dead to him. Is this like a, how, what's the status of micro four thirds? If people are really thinking about turning this into their system, they're going to invest money in. Is that reasonable to do right now? Or is it nearing the end of its life? Are you throwing money away? What's the story? Well, as long as it still keeps having an advantage in terms of 
readout speed, I think it's still going to have a place. Uh, this is what we touched on talking about the OM, uh, OM1 camera that has even faster readout. All that cool computational stuff is going to be doable on real cameras very soon. We're getting close to that. Uh, and if Micro Four Thirds is reading out faster than every other sensor format, then it's going to have a real advantage. And that can undo a lot of those smaller sensor limitations as well. You know, the low light, the dynamic range, doing a bunch of image compositing like your phone does will offset all that. Uh, so I think that's the way forward for them. If they don't go in that direction, I mean, I can already tell when they announced the GH6, I was like, everyone is going to be losing their mind over this thing. I can't wait to tell them. And mm -hmm. everyone on the internet was like, oh, that sensor's pretty small. I heard the autofocus. And it's just like, this is my dream camera. <laughs> yeah. why, are, why is no one excited about yeah. this? Uh, so I just think perception is going to be a real issue and it might be a problem. So is it... Is it a huge cop-out if I say, like, I don't know, like, let's see how the next six months go if these two cameras reinvigorate the yeah. Micro Four Thirds market? Because yeah. I'm excited. Sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of professionals who aren't on the clickety-clacks leaving comments about cameras are going to be really excited about this. I, I think that's who it's built for. I think Armando, Mondobytes, made a great point on Twitter. He mentioned that the actual size of the sensor is only one millimeter smaller, smaller than the red Komodo. Um because of the aspect, like you don't think about it, right? Because it's distributed differently. So if you're shooting anamorphic, you're better off resolution-wise on this Micro Four Thirds yeah. sensor than on a red Komodo. Like think about that. That's a that's that's a thing. That is for twenty two hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. that and the lenses are less expensive. I don't know. There's, I can think of reasons that I might want this camera, but I don't know. Me, me, me. I got to hook you up with some of the uh, one seven zooms. Oh that'll, yeah, yeah. That'll okay. Seal the deal. Next time I see you, they're yeah. spectacular. Okay, totally. Yeah. I've, uh, I, yeah. I've got to say, I was not that happy with the like default lenses that I was using. Um, I mean, they're fine, yeah. but they're not. You know, they're nothing. Well, they're not going to compete with a full frame lens, right? You're not going to get that separation and that low light performance. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's equivalent to an f five point six, which is not that spectacular. Yeah. So, uh, those two eight zooms that you've got, but yeah, these things, these things are lovely. All right. Well, Jordan, um, this was awesome. I can't wait for the next camera that we can talk about. I, you, you were on almost back to back, which I think is wonderful. We should have Jordan on more often. So. Glad to, glad to have you here. If anybody doesn't know, because I'm bad at intros, Jordan is from DB Review TV. <laughs> so go check him out and uh, also follow him on Twitter. That's uh, It's the real Jordan Drake? No. What is, what's your thing? That Jordan Drake. That Jordan Drake. How could I forget? Jordan Drake is a very popular name. All right, well, because it's a good name. All right. Thanks again, Jordan. See you next time. Do that. Next time.